What do you do with a guilty conscience? We all have them, and we all have various ways in which we try to somehow or another um, deal with what's going on inside of us. What is your go-to to deal with a guilty conscience? Now, I have run across exactly one person in my entire life that I'm aware of that had made the statement that they don't think they ever did anything wrong. One. It has been my privilege to meet with folks who would consider themselves not to be followers of Jesus, not to be affiliated with any religion whatsoever. I, I, only one time in my life have I met someone who says, yeah, just don't, don't sin. We all know that we do. The question, what do we do with a guilty conscience? Now, the thing that we uh, despise the most in us, this is true of those that are irreligious and those that are religious, what we despise the most in us is when we hurt those that we love the most. Now, what do we do when we bring pain and suffering? We know it's a result of our choices. We are responsible for it. What do we do when we hurt or wound those that we love the most? If you are typical, you are normal, you are uh, like most of humanity, one of our go-tos is that we simply try and create some level of separation out of embarrassment and shame. So, for example, when we wound our spouse or wound a friend, someone that is dear to us, we typically back up and hope that enough space is created that we don't have to deal with what's going on inside. And sometimes we hope that enough time will pass so that there will be some level of healing and we don't have to actually deal with it. I'm here to tell you that I really, really believe this. There's a better way. There's a much better way to deal with what we all deal with, and that is a guilty conscience. Although we may want space to do its work, it will never, ever do its work. Brian is a gentleman that I got the chance uh, to spend some time with in AA. Now, he showed up at AA after I'd been there for a couple of years, and, and um, uh, at that point, I was really, truly growing um, in my walk with God. And Brian is a gentleman who came in, and he came in forced by the state to begin taking part in uh, AA meetings. And he, like many others, had to make 90 AA meetings in 90 days to, require, uh, to, to bring satisfaction to uh, the state of Alabama. Now, he was in there, and he was about 25 years my elder. This was a guy that had lived enough life. And he had committed a series of crimes that had gone, um, uh, had not been arrested, he had not been brought in. Uh, for 25 years, he had been holding on to a handful of secrets. Now, he did not murder someone. It wasn't at that level. Um, but it was, he, he did take advantage of others financially in such a way that it had been bothering him. And it finally caught up with him. And as he tells the story, police came and knocking on his door. And the second that he opened the door and saw them, he fell to his knees and began weeping like a baby. He said, David, I don't mean I began crying with a little tear here. I'm talking about I wept like a baby, crawled up in the fetal position. They arrested him. He pleaded guilty to the crimes. 
And a part of what, what he needed to do was to come to a rehabilitation center. After he had gone out of the rehabilitation center, I now got a chance to meet him in an AA meeting. He had turned to alcohol. He had turned to drugs. He had turned to many other things to try to assuage the guilt. He knew he had brought damage to multiple people in the process. Judith and I have a friend. It's a friend that was actually in ministry. He and I worked together. He was in student ministry the same time I was doing student ministries. This is a gentleman that did, in essence, the same thing, took advantage of several people financially. He got out of youth ministry, began to prosper financially, was on the news, uh, was on uh, television uh, as a counselor, uh, those uh, giving a financial advice. Um, to this day, the police have no idea where he is. He left his wife, he left his children, and he is off somewhere where, in my opinion, I just know, he is trying to do the best that he can right now to avoid his conscience. He thinks right now, in this moment, that the best option is to run. Can I tell you, the best option is not to run from your guilty conscience. The best option is to deal with it in the most courageous way, and that is, hear this, through confession. Today we enter into a type of psalm that I'm going to call a confession. You could also call it lament. There are other subtitles that we could have here, but, but what we're looking at is just a, a way in which God gives us to pray specifically to him, to take responsibility for what it is that we have done, but it's also so that we might experience the depth of his grace and mercy. This is why we confess. We confess because it's the right thing to do. We need to make amends with other people where it's appropriate. But the driving reason that we must confess is this. Because separation from God is the greatest pain that we will ever experience. And God wants to rescue us from our pain. We've said this, we're in a series, and that series is on Psalms. Oftentimes, we don't know what to do with life's ups and downs. And we said the Psalms are God's prayers given to his people for all of life's ups and downs. Today, we're talking about a prayer that is for some of life's downs that we will experience. We all feel isolated from God when we sin. We know that the standard is up here. We know God has said, be ye holy as I am holy, and we know we cannot meet that standard. And so when it is that we sin, we feel isolated from God. We have even been taught well over the years. We know that God is a holy God. God will not tolerate sin. He despises it. He hates it. And so in our minds, we imagine that God would treat us in the same way that we would treat others if others treated us the same way we treat God. And so we would imagine that God would create separation with us and he would just sit back and he would wait for us to become penitent and he's staring glare, he's just glare. But God is not like us. We are like him in some ways, but he is very unlike us. God sees us currently right now in our condition. He runs to, he chases us down. He is calling out. You can be running today from God. You may be doing that very thing. You may be running as hard as you can. You knew that you had to come and tolerate the service this morning in order to get mom off your back or your spouse off your back or whatever it is. You may be trying to run as hard as you can away from God. 
Here's what God is most likely doing. He is running faster than you can run. He is running behind you. And sometimes you will hear him whisper out. Sometimes it'll be a shout in which he's calling out your sin. Now, why would God do that? A confession slash lament psalm is a sacred Hebrew poem acknowledging sin, accepting responsibility for sin, and then relying upon God's grace and mercy. Why would God do it? The answer comes to us here in Psalm chapter 6. If you are physically able, would you stand in honor of God's word as we read Psalm 6. David says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye uh, wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You may be seated. Psalm chapter 6 is a psalm that is attributed to David. It lets us know that in the title. It tells us here that it is to the choir master. Now, maybe that choir master was Asaph. Maybe it was somebody else. We don't know. Maybe the choir master, and David's mind, actually is the Lord himself. Maybe David is writing this for the Lord. In one sense, we know that he's writing it to the Lord. In another we know that he is writing it inspired under the, the, the Holy Spirit in a unique way to give this to God's people throughout all times. It says here that it is for uh, the, the stringed instruments. In the Hebrew, we have every reason to believe that it is for an eight-stringed harp. I can't play an eight-string. I, I can't play a jaw harp. But this is clearly a Hebrew poem, a sacred Hebrew poem, that is meant for God's people to sing this song. Now let that sit in for just a moment. It's not just that it's poetry designed to, to meet our minds and our hearts. It goes an extra step in getting to the depths of our emotions by putting it to music. Is it not true that music stirs us in a way oftentimes that the spoken word just can't? I have heard folks in the theater, those in that have uh, uh, dramatic uh, art, gifts in the dramatic arts, I've heard them say um, that we sing because we can no longer speak. There's something that music does for us, and he designed this hymn, this psalm, this prayer, this confession to be sung, to let the depths and the weight of the sin hit all of us. You've probably been there before, haven't you? You've been there before where you have sinned, you know it. Other people may not be aware of it, but you have been dealing with it. Maybe it's days, maybe it's weeks or months, perhaps even years. And you know what it is like to experience the depth of shame that comes with it. 
So David decides to put a song to shame. And he has a solution for us here at the end. He starts out by saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What is he getting at in here? He is asking God not to punish him while God is filled with wrath. Now, David did not have the completion of the scriptures. David did not have the great news that you and I would have after this was written. We know that God never disciplines his children in his wrath, meaning that he goes off uh, in this uncontrolled rage and just takes out his anger on them. We see that in human relationships from time to time. A good friend of ours in Atlanta is an emergency room nurse. She is a pediatric emergency room nurse. And there were a couple of different occasions in which she called me after her shift. And she would be coming home and she'd say, David, I just need to process this with you. And through tears, she would tell about parents who in their wrath took out their anger on their small children. David is saying, God, don't discipline me. If all you can see is my sin. That's a good thing for us to pray the same thing. Why? Because even though we know that God doesn't discipline us in his wrath, what do we feel? Don't we feel it? Don't we say, yeah, I know your word says that, but pray it. Sing it. Pour your heart out and say, God, please don't get so irritated with me that in your fury you decide to cast me away. Pray it. It helps the soul. Verses 1 through 7 really are telling us one message, and that sin itself is a burden that is too great to carry. Now look what he does in verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? For I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He lets us know in here that sin has even greatly affected his physical body. When he says the word bones in here, he's referring to all of his physical body. I'm languishing. I am struggling. I have been dealing with this, and it is now affecting my physical body. You been there? You held something inside so long that it is actually causing you to be physically ill? Maybe not vomiting, but maybe to the point where you are having trouble. Your body is beginning to feel the effects of sin. A couple uh, in Atlanta were married. They were, uh, I um, have been great friends with them uh, for a long time. Uh, they were married. And uh, without um, his knowledge, um, she had been involved with another man right before they got married. And it greatly affected her soul. It was a clear mistake, something that she regretted. And what happened after this is it affected her body in a significant way for six years. And in the sixth year of their marriage, she woke up in the middle of the night and just confessed to him. And she confessed about this much of what it was. 
and her husband being filled with the Spirit, having the heart that Christ has for his bride, did not back away from her, but actually moved in towards her. And the more gracious he was to her, the more she revealed about this other relationship. And over a period of a couple of weeks, when she finally confessed everything that there was to confess, get this, overnight, her body was healed. No longer dealing with the physical ailment that had plagued her for six years in marriage. They're married to this day. A couple of kids thriving, doing well in life. The body gets affected. It's not just our body. Look at verse 3. My soul is also greatly troubled. It is, it is my mind. It is my will. It is my emotions. It's my psyche. It's my whole approach to life. Oftentimes, my sin is ever before me, and I can't get it out of the way. I can't deal with it. And so my soul gets overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. It affects our bodies, and it affects our souls, mind, will, emotions, psyche, etc., all of that. Look at how he finishes verse 3. But you, O Lord, and if your Bible doesn't have a little hyphen there, it's a bad translation. But you, O Lord, it's as if he's writing it this way. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, and he can't complete the sentence. And the only thing that comes out after that is, how long? How long am I going to deal with this? Notice his request to the Lord. It is good. It is right for us to pray in such a manner in which we are appealing to God's character. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. It's a beautiful word. It's a word called hased. It is the, 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 the kind of love that God has for his children that we really cannot replicate. It's a nonstop, ongoing, everlasting love that God has for his people. And so he appeals to God's character. He says, God, would you forgive me? Would you deliver me? Would you not hold this against me for the sake of your character? I'm convinced that the psalmist at this moment, David, is remembering what it is that Moses got a chance to experience. When he asked to see who God was, and God said, you can't see my face, let you see my back. And so he puts him in a cleft of a rock, puts his hand over him, passes by. And when he passes by, he begins to whisper to Moses who he is. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. David is appealing to God based on who God is. I know you are a lover of souls. I know you are compassionate and gracious. Now notice David is in no way, shape, or form here thinking that somehow or another um, he has no role to play in this, that he has done nothing. He is not coming to God and saying, you know, God, um, really because I've lived so well for the years previous to this and because 
eight out of ten times I got it right, then, then you really should be paying attention to me right now. He's coming in and throwing himself at the mercy of the Almighty God, appealing to the steadfast love of God. He has experienced this God's character in the past. He wants to experience it again. Have you experienced God's steadfast love? Have you come to him knowing that he, he, he does not have to forgive you? Have you come just throwing yourself at the mercy? Remember Jesus when he was talking about two guys that were praying? And there was one guy that was praying out there and he said, Oh, Lord, thank you, God, that I am not like one of these people. Thank you that you have revealed so much to me. You've given me so much. Thank you that I am a model for all to see, God. Thank you for all the ways that you've blessed my mind, which is magnificent. God, thank you, thank you. And then there's another guy that's just beating on his chest. Oh, God, have mercy. What does Jesus say? This dude over here who had no idea how to pray in public, who was scared to death to say the words because he was afraid he was going to get them wrong. This guy over here who was trained. Over, this is the guy who left righteous because he threw himself at the mercy of God. But he appeals with the hope that God is, is just as good as advertised. He takes a risk that says, God, I'm throwing myself at your feet in the hopes that you are just as good as I've heard, which is the second part of what David is praying for. He's appealing to the reputation of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. Turn, I'm sorry, for in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? Saying, God, what I really want to do is I would love to give the world an opportunity to hear about your grace and your mercy. And I think that I'm on the point of death here. And so would you deliver me so that I might declare while I'm living how great it is that you are. That's a great prayer. It's a great prayer to pray, God, I want you to put on display your compassion, your grace, your mercy. Would you cause the whole world to see just how much of a forgiving God you are? And I will tell you this, Lord, if you will do that, if you will deliver me, I will be sure to give you all the glory, all the credit, all the praise, so that your reputation may be high and exalted. Appeal to God's character, we appeal to God's reputation. Verses 6 and 7, in many ways we've already covered earlier, we said the body, but listen, I am weary with my moaning every night, I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with weeping. I think we all know this is hyperbole. We should not think that David had a floating bed. David is just spending so much time weeping. Maybe a way we would say it in our day and age is this, I don't think I have any tears left to cry. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Interesting. All of my foes. Now, maybe David is actually talking about some, some physical people, which I think he is. But I think the heart of what David is getting at here is he's really referring to the greatest foe that there is, and that is the evil one who is known as the accuser. Is there any voice that we hear louder when we sin than the voice of the accuser? He tempts me with something that looks so good in the moment, and I think, yeah, this is going to be worth it. In the moment, I think this is more valuable than saying no to my flesh and walking in the Spirit. And so I walk into this sin, not a victim of anything. All Satan did was just make it a little more enticing. 
But I make the choice to walk in, to go this route of sin. And then what the evil one does is after making this so appealing and beautiful, he also steps back and he says, look at you. Can you believe you did that? You call yourself a child of God? God's children don't act like this. Others live a far different life than you do because it's clear they are followers of Jesus, but not you. And we go further down and down into this pit of despair and shame. And sometimes the only voice we can hear is the voice of the one who loves to deceive. Because his greatest desire, his greatest desire is to, to get us away, to get our eyes in this position here as we just look down and our heads are hung in shame. And then we look further in just navel gaze. We see all the depths of our sin. He points it out. He keeps bringing it up left and right. If, if he can keep our heads in this posture right here, he is glad. What he doesn't want us to do is this. Because when my eyes go up here, it goes away from my sin. And it goes to the magnificence of who he is. It doesn't change the fact that I am indeed wretched in my behavior. All of my foes, he says, depart from me. All you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Notice he hasn't heard even yet the sound of a confession. He's just heard the sound of the weeping. And so the Lord's ears are attentive. Even before we come to a place of confession, his heart goes towards those who are dealing with guilt and shame. Even before we can utter the words up to him, his ears are listening in. Now, his ears can only listen in if he's drawing near. He's not backing up from you. He's moving in. The question is, are you going to move in to meet him? The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. He heard my weeping first. He then heard my confession to him. the, The words that I give to him, it doesn't matter how professional or unprofessional. It doesn't matter how complete or incomplete. He knows the motives of my heart. I come before him. I throw myself at his mercy. He hears it. And then look at this. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. God, this is so great. And this is so beautifully put on display in a very contested passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Some say it doesn't belong in the Bible. I think it does. In John chapter 8, first 11 verses, is a story of a woman who was caught literally in the act of adultery. And she is taken by some religious leaders of the day, those who were very proud of their religious performance. And they are trying to set a trap for Jesus. And so when they catch her, they bring her and they throw her literally into the ground right before Jesus. And Scripture tells us that she falls down at the feet of the Savior. Is there any better place to be? 
And so they asked Jesus, hey, what do you think we ought to do with her? And Jesus wants nothing to do with their trivial nature. They don't care about her. Jesus cares everything about her. Jesus is going to uphold the law while moving in in grace at the same time. What should we do, Jesus? What should we do, Jesus? What should we do, Jesus? If Jesus says this, they got him. If Jesus says this, they think they got him. So Jesus just starts writing something in the sand. We don't know what he writes. He just writes something in the sand. And then he's, he stands up. He looks over at him and says, sure. Whichever one of you is without sin, pick up a rock. Slowly but surely, beginning with the oldest ones who had lived the longest, who knew they were sinful, they, there was no way they were going to win this one. It says they began to make their way away until finally the youngest one goes away. And then Jesus moves in towards this sinner. She hasn't even asked for forgiveness yet. Jesus moves in towards her and looks at her and says, Woman, where are your accusers? This is what God does with our accusers. See, because the only one who has no sin, the only one who can actually stand as one in between a holy God and a sinful man, the only one who did everything that is right moves towards sinners, moves toward shame. He moves in to meet with people. And when he steps in, guess what all of the accusers have to do? They can no longer look at you and me. They can no longer point the finger because he is standing in the solitude of himself. And he takes on all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the shame. And the accusers have to leave. Do you want to put your hope in your ability to fix your life? Or do you want to turn to Jesus? When you pray, do you want to try to put yourself in sort of a spiritual jail for a little while, making sure there's enough time so that God knows you really feel bad about your sin? Or do you want to move in boldly, approaching the throne of grace, coming in solely on the record of Jesus himself? And do you want Jesus to intercede on your behalf? Or do you want to take your chances on your own with God? I will tell you this. If you take your chances on your own, your accuser will rightly be able to say, God, do, do, you, do you see this? Do you know the scriptures tell us that the evil one can no longer go to the Father and point at us because of all that Jesus has done? They are going to be turned back. They are going to be put to shame. I close with, just a thought for you. In the book of James, which is written by the half-brother of Jesus, the same dude that thought his brother was insane, went out to go get his brother after his brother had made some sort of outlandish claims like being God, things like that. So he was ready to take Jesus away and, and to put him aside for a little bit. Something happens after Jesus comes back from the dead. And so James uh, now begins uh, to write. And he writes this great book. And James over the years has been accused of being one that just, he's about the law. Paul's about all this grace stuff, and, and James is about that. And that's just nothing could be further from the truth. 
They both are about grace. They both are about the law being upheld by the person of Christ. But James makes a statement in the fourth chapter. And just listen to the verse. It may be up on the screen. I can't remember if I sent it to the notes, but just listen. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, who do you want to cleanse your conscience? Do you want to take the risk that you can do enough work so that your conscience can be cleansed? Or do you want to do as James did, as James learned? Draw near to God. You step in, in the midst of your sin, with the weight of it on your shoulders, step in, take a risk, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Oh, my friend, the Psalms give us the prayers of God. It is given to the people of God to pray to God for God's glory. He has given us words in here so that we might know how to come. You have permission from God to come into his presence just as you are. And you will find nowhere else on earth will be able to cleanse your conscience like God can. Now, at the end of each one of these sermons, we'd like to take an opportunity just to be able to pray. And so sometimes in the weeks in the future, we're going to have a chance to pray together. But for today, we want to give you just a few moments. It's a few moments to be able to draw into the presence of God in the quietness of your own seat. And, and then Russell and, and Andy are going to play for us. But the heart of Psalm 6, I think, can be captured in some wise words from my mother who gave this to me years ago. Intimacy is built on resolved conflict. Intimacy with God is built on resolved conflict. So would you make it a habit of finding a secret place, a place that you can get to, that you can enter into the presence of God, you can draw near and experience him drawing near to you. Not even your sin can keep you away from God. So would you pray for a few moments where you are, and Russell and Andy will lead us in a time of singing.